This episode is brought to you by Upcase. Now that you've mastered the basics, Upcase makes it easy for you to take the next step. Not a boot camp or a MOOC, we're a finishing school. We'll show you how the best developers around tackle coding challenges, what their backgrounds are, and how they got to where they are. Stick with us, and soon you'll be taking the junior out of your title. Learn more at upcase.com. Welcome to this week's episode of Crossroads. I'm still in New York, still having a great time talking to developers here. And today I'm joined by Tyson at ThoughtBot. So maybe you could do a little bit of an intro about what you do here. Yeah. Hi. Thanks for, for having me on. I'm a designer here at ThoughtBot. As maybe people know, we pretty much have two roles in terms of the developers and designers here at ThoughtBot. We keep them pretty generalized. So designers at ThoughtBot do everything from products to front-end development and implementation through the series of user research and UX and everything kind of in between. So it's lots of fun. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. I have a broader sort of question around what counts as a developer based on that because I think there's a lot of ideas of what you ought to be doing or mm -hmm. what sort of person you are or what sort of skills you have to have in order to be a developer with a capital D mm -hmm. and obviously in this in this company there's a lot of people with lots of different skills what do you think makes a developer a developer yeah I, I think at ThoughtBot at least we lean heavy on the development side so I think that's a super interesting question for the design side of things, I always sort of consider, you know, as long as you're doing implementation and you're touching code, you, you, you're a developer, right? Mm -hmm. For me, I think where it, where it ends doesn't necessarily have to end, but where I feel like it could end for many people is implementation that, that's sort of the, the user's experience, right? Like that's where our sort of like job title, you know, that's, that's really what we focus on. So if you're implementing things that affect the user, like you've you've gone far enough and you should be satisfied with, with that. You don't necessarily have to go any further. You know, there's plenty of designers here at ThoughtBot that, you know, do some Rails and some Ruby stuff and that's fantastic and they have a better understanding potentially of, you know, porting that back into some design like understanding and allowing them to to design better products because of that, which is awesome. But I don't think you should feel like you have to, you know, dive into Ruby or Rails or anything like that or any sort of implementation that far. Okay, interesting, interesting. So how long have you been diving into the code base and implementing? Ooh, that's a very good question. Ever since I've really been kind of designing for the web, actually, mm. I've been touching code and doing that side. I'm, I'm fortunate to, enough to have an older brother who does very similar things to me. So in college, when I had a marketing course on web stuff, which was focused mostly around like marketing your brand and things on the web, the class was using iWeb, but my brother sat and taught me actual HTML and CSS rather than using um, like a GUI to create the website. Mm. So I sort of know web design from the start as also doing some implementation, which is great. But I've had a lot of clients, you know, both at ThoughtBot and freelance that I've, you know, not touched code and have done, you know, web design and stayed sort of out of the implementation side of things. So I've been on that, you know, side of the fence as well. But I think implementing or having enough knowledge of implementation to be aware of it and to, to know how things interact allow you to be a better designer. Amazing. You mentioned that your brother was helpful in helping you learn HTML. It sounds like you had a pretty early start in pair programming. True. We <laughs> that's I never thought about it as pair programming, but it absolutely was. And we were using iChat way, way back when 
and we would, you know, hop on a call each night. I'm thinking it was a video call, but honestly, I'm not sure that video wow. calls so were, were like that popular. I think it was just programming audio. from yeah. day one. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty and big. And we would send just files back and forth to each other. I mean, just straight up HTML and CSS, like no preprocessors, no fancy, you know, build tools or Pre anything like GitHub. that. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know what GitHub was at that point. So yeah, no account or nothing. <laughs> nice. Nice. So you were doing that in university. Yes. And then at what point did you think, meh, I want to do this for a job. Sounds great. Yeah. I, so I was studying at the time, I was studying audio engineering and music business was specifically what I was studying. So I did those two degrees and I left college and got an internship in the music industry and did that for about two years or so. And I was like moonlighting projects on the side anyway. I was, you know, working on a site for my girlfriend and working on a site for the, the coffee roaster that was, you know, just down the street from us where we lived. And so these little small projects. And so I was doing that on the side, having fun with it. I didn't really consider it a full-time job in, until someone in Beacon, where we were living in New York, he approached me. He ran a design studio also down the, down the block from us where we were living. And he was like, Hey, I see you reading like web books all the time in the coffee shop. Like, do you do web design and development stuff? So we got to talking and he started like feeding me, you know, small clients just to get started. And that went well. And it was enough sort of for me to say, Hey, like I enjoy doing this. I think it's enough for me to quit my job and take this on full time. And so that was a good sort of jumping off point for me to have that contact for him to give me work early on. Interesting. So, so far we're at a couple of transitions. First, you're in university, you're learning about web design, but your brother introduces this idea of learning from scratch, learning HTML yeah. from the back end, and you start remote pair programming. Step one. Step two, you leave university and go off to do music stuff. It's great, but you're still scratching that itch, so to speak. Then someone random at a coffee shop offers you lots of work. And then now you're being paid to do this thing that was once a hobby. Right. Yeah. Fascinating. I'm, I'm, I'm only saying it like that because <laughs> I, I think it's really important for people to kind of hold on to the fact that it can be random. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. that actually the more developers I talk to, the less it's like, I wanted to be a developer. And then I did this and this and this and this. It's like mm -hmm. sort of, it just happens sometimes. Yeah. In the web community, you can make something and you can publish it to the web and it's like available around the world. That That's insane. And I think especially coming from the music industry where everything is very, you know, sort of hierarchical and you have to produce these big expensive things and, you know, maybe something will get picked up and you get out there for people to kind of reach it and know of you. But that's pretty rare. And, you know, we were working on really cool, big projects, but I was just a tiny little piece of it and no one really knew who I was. And so the web, for me at least, was just the bouncing off point of being like, wow, this is really cool. Like everyone in the community is super friendly in the web and you can create things and you can just kind of go out there and exist and you have full control over it. And that's just fascinating. So I felt like I was just kind of yearning for that experience and I stumbled into this you know, bigger thing that actually allowed me to make a job of it and move to the city and freelance for a few years successfully. And now I'm a top on. I want to talk a little bit more about freelancing because yeah. I think a lot of people think it's quite mysterious and doesn't make a lot of sense. And what's really the difference between like a freelancer and entrepreneur as well. That's yeah. quite, quite an interesting conversation that's been happening in the scene. And I specifically want to touch on when you were sort of moonlighting with these projects in, while you're still in the music industry and going to coffee shops, taking out your web books, learning, experimenting, shipping. 
at the point of your first client that was sent to you by this random person, did you position yourself as a developer or did you position yourself as, I'm just trying to figure this thing out? I think a little bit of both, at least in the case of the gentleman who ran the design studio in town and, and helped me find some clients. We were working together as a design team, so I wasn't doing much development at the time. I was doing development for the coffee shop to build an e-commerce site for that person. So there was some projects that was, you know, I was wearing the developer hat a little bit more and other projects where I was wearing more of a design hat. So it was sort of interesting to see both sides of that experience. But I think during freelancing or as that progressed, I found myself very intrigued by like front-end development and quality of code and those kinds of things. So I think I kind of leaned towards that way throughout freelancing. And overall, like I look back to the the years that I freelanced, which is about three years, as effectively my like second college. Mm. For me, it was like I'm very much like a hands-on learner or a learner of like, you know, I do it, I fail, I learn, I try again. And I'm not one to crack, although I did say that I was reading books at the time, I'm not usually one to like crack open books and just read and soak it in and like mm. learn that way. Mm. So freelancing was me just making lots and lots of mistakes and apologizing lots to clients who I upset and trying to keep moving forward and forward and forward. Thank goodness I didn't screw up so majorly that, you know, I couldn't keep going, but it was, it was education effectively. People rarely do, right? Like yeah. You rarely screw up so much to the point where you can't keep going. Yeah. And, you know, I find that most times, as long as you're being honest and you apologize and you're just straight with them, you know, sometimes hard conversations, but that's about it, mm. you know, and everyone can get past a hard conversation. You speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're right. And I think with more time, you sort of get thicker skin and you understand that it's just work. It's not the, the essence of your soul being put to the test by yeah. this email. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. So that's really great. And I think we've, we've got a lot of like really interesting touch points around junior developers who want to move into freelancing. It's from what you're saying, it sounds like it's viable. Keep making stuff, keep making mistakes, learn from them, show your working and show your work. Mm -hmm. I know that you do a lot of like writing and like workshops and like you share a lot of knowledge as you're learning. So it's not just I that try you, to. <laughs> it's not just that you're like sitting down and being like, oh, I learned some stuff. It's like, no, you're like sharing as you're learning. And I think that that creates a really good sort of karmic cycle of sorts, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm fortunate enough to work for ThoughtBot, of course, because we have a culture of that, which is incredibly important. I think I definitely could have shared more when I was freelancing, you know, and, and written more or published more to, to Dribble or whatever it might be, you know, there's so much more. But and hopping into like open source and things, or like I always think of like, I guess in the coffee shop example for me, at least, which was like that intro more towards like a real development client. I had to like build an e-commerce site. I had never built an e-commerce site before, you know, but here I am doing it. There's tons of like bad websites out there and tons of bad software out there that needs to be redesigned or need some help or need some love or needs a developer expertise on or whatever. There's tons of it out there. So that's like ripe for people just to like start talking, you know, introduce yourself, say, Hey, I, maybe we could work on this together. And then, you know, weasel your way in there and, and start helping make all that better. Right, 100%. So one of the other things that I really like about what you do is your focus on accessibility on the web. Yes. How prominent has that been in your learning journey? Like at what point did someone say like, and by the way, you need to make the web accessible? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I don't know if there was a specific moment like that for me, but I had a grandfather who was legally blind. He had macular degeneration. Mm. And so for the 
15 years towards the end of his life, he couldn't use a VCR and he couldn't use the everyday MP3 player, you know, he could barely watch the TV. Everything had to be kind of zoomed in, you know, stuff like that. But we got him a, an iPod one year for Christmas, I believe. And just the simplicity of the physical product design for iPods allowed him to listen to music, you know, because he couldn't operate like the CD players or the MP3 players at the time. But the iPod had the click wheel, right? Mm. And it's so straightforward. Mm. And looking back, what I didn't realize at the time, but I kind of look back now is that to me is like inclusive design or for, you know, design for everyone. Yeah. It didn't affect any, anyone who didn't have disabilities at all. Mm. And we liked it and used it as well. But for those people who might have a hard time looking at 20 different tiny buttons with either no words or a little tiny icon mm. that doesn't make sense, you know, mm. all those things kind of went away with the iPod. And for even someone who couldn't see the detail of the screen or the click wheel or anything was still able to just cruise through that thing. And of course, at the time, Apple's always been a little bit of a leader in that space, but, you know, it had like voiceover and stuff on it. So you right. could, you know, talk back to you and things like that. So you could enable some extra features, but the core design of the product was really just so simple and so straightforward and got out of the way enough for like everyone to kind of use it. So I look back at that a lot for the web. I think it was a natural progression of just quality of code, craftsmanship on the web, you know, not leaving anyone out. And really just kind of honoring like the nature of the World Wide Web, which is like, you know, making content accessible to, to everyone through the internet. Like that's a really powerful thing. And more often than not, people will create content, but we're leaving people out of this whole thing. And so right. web accessibility is just another way of, you know, sort of standing the grounds of like an open web and making the web for everyone, that kind of thing. So I, I kind of get behind that a lot. And I just think right now also, the past three, four years in the design community, like web accessibility has started to get talked about for the first time, which is amazing. So I just want to be a part of that conversation and like help move it forward if I can. Mm, no, that's great. You mentioned that it's been talked about in the design community. Do you think that developers have a similar level of awareness or investment in this movement? Yeah, I think so. Web accessibility is primarily a front end practice. That's really where the, the sort of accessibility of websites or web application like live. Um, it's all about the front end code, you know, HTML and CSS and things. So if we have developers focusing on the front end, usually they're aware of those things and they're taking them into consideration. I think the conversation has gotten a lot more lively past few years and we have a lot more standards around this stuff too, which is exciting. So we went through a similar thing 15 years ago in the, in the web in general of like web standards, right? Like that was a huge thing. And people started really talking and implementing semantic markup. And that's fantastic. Mm, mm. I feel like this is sort of the second wind, so to speak, of like a similar idea or motion, which is just, you know, standardizing what we can, allowing tooling to be built into browsers and, you know, devices and things to sort of standardize that process of making things accessible to everyone, mm. which is great. And so browsers are implementing features to allow us to to do things that we couldn't before and WCAG, the, the web content guidelines moving forward, they're being uh, updated all the time. So it's a fun time to, to be involved. That's awesome. Down to my last question. Mm -hmm. What would you say to a designer slash developer who's in the very junior phases of their career? And I say that really arbitrarily as in 
they feel as though they are in the very junior phases of their career. It could be that they have an immense portfolio, but they still don't feel as though they're mm -hmm, quite ready mm -hmm. to call themselves a developer or a designer or people who wear that dual hat. Because there's not a lot of roles like the one at ThoughtBot where you can sort of say, actually, I can do both and I can bring both of these skills to the table. It feels as though a lot of employers in the tech industry are segmenting and siloing very specific roles based on what they consider to be important. So for example, I've seen things like we want a React developer or like we want a language specific developer. What sort of advice would you give to people who don't fall into the category of specific language, specific framework, specific way of doing things? People who are jack of all trades and master of some, right? Right, right, yeah. yeah. Generalists yeah. as we mostly are here at ThoughtBot. I mean, I don't think ThoughtBot is necessarily unique, at least in the consulting space. So. I see a lot of highly specific titles at like product companies. So right. if you're looking for a more generalist role, perhaps like a consultancy or something like that would be more fitting or freelancing where you can have more control over that. And you can move on to a product role later if you find something mm. through that process of like, mm. you know what, I really like React and I'm going to focus on that. That's great. Like then you can run with it, you know, but maybe somewhere that you can have a little bit more general high level control over, you know, where you're going or what you're working with would be better fitting. And then there's always like open source or just, you know, latching on to projects out there that are needing people pop in there, help out a little bit, see how it is. Maybe you wind up like being a core contributor after a year or something. And like, then you find that path or, you know, whatever. I think I believe a lot in like the power of open source and it's helped me at least grow as a developer and as someone just like generally working with people in the web community and with other developers and other designers. Like I've learned so much just by doing open source software. It's fascinating to me and, mm. and it's a great learning environment. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And happy weekend. You too. <laughs>